As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. The C.S. Lewis Podcast with Alistair McGrath. Well, hello and welcome back to the show. It's Justin Briley still sitting in for Ruth Jackson while she's on maternity leave and hosting this final episode of this season of the podcast with Alistair McGrath. Today, concluding this season by looking at the different ways that Lewis and Tolkien expressed the Christian story through their well-known fantasy writings and by the way if you can hear the wind whistling through my windows in the background it's because we've had some pretty high winds in the UK Uh, storm Eunice has blown through Um, so uh, apologies if you can hear that but we're still here still bringing you the podcast and great to know that many people are listening to it from all over the world someone from the Netherlands left this review saying really interesting podcast you not only get a great overview of who C.S. Lewis was but moreover it makes you think about God and the different narratives in life how am I going to tell the story of God. Thank you very much for leaving that. And if if you can rate and review the podcast wherever you're listening, it helps others to discover the show too. Just before we get into today's episode, a reminder that our Ask Philip Yancey Anything event from Premier Unbelievable is coming up on the 1st of March. You can register free to be part of the audience for a live Q&A with one of the most significant voices in the evangelical church from the past few decades. Plus, you can also now book for Unbelievable the Conference on Saturday the 14th of May. We're going to be live from the British Library in London, but you can attend from anywhere in the world. Our theme is God Unmuted, helping the church to find its authentic voice again. And of course, one of our keynote speakers is Alistair McGrath. Uh, Lisa Fields will also be joining us, Glenn Scrivener, John Wyatt, Phil Vischer and Sky Jutani, many other guests, helping us to make sense of this cultural moment and how we can speak with grace and truth into our divided culture. If you want to be part of that, Unbelievable 2022 or our forthcoming Ask Philip Yancey Anything event, just visit unbelievable.live. Not too late to do that. The link is with the podcast info. Hope you enjoy today's show. Let's talk about um, what emerged in a sense to, to become, though neither of them realised it at the time that they were writing these books, the, the books that they would become best known for, both in the realm of fantasy literature. Um, in, in that sense, Lewis and Tolkien both found fame in later in life for fantasy writing. Um, what, what, what do you think, I mean, to, what role did Lewis first of all play in, in encouraging Tolkien to, to, to take the bull by the horns and, and look to get these stories he had been writing, you know, in private? published because uh for a long time i think as i understand it you know the whole sort of universe if you like of the hobbit and the lord of the rings was was being talked about in the inklings and and looked at and discussed 
But Lewis had a hand in actually encouraging Tolkien to take it to the next step. Is that right? I think that's right. I mean, it's obvious that Lewis and Tolkien were talking about fantasy writing before the Inklings actually came together. And it's also very clear that Tolkien didn't have anyone else to talk to about these things. Um, they were very, it's very private. And so we have this remarkable um, situation. I remember when I, I was reading Lewis's letters um, and, uh, from the late 1920s, and he's talking about his conversations with Tolkien about these great literary ideas they have. And at that time, no one had ever heard of C.S. Lewis. No one had ever heard of J.R.R. Tolkien. They're just obscure Oxford academics, but they are they are beginning to hatch the ideas for which both would later become really well known. And Tolkien, I think, was absolutely explicit, you know, that um, Lewis really was midwife to his ideas, that actually um, Lewis was the one who said, you've got to keep going, you've got to take this serious, you've got to really write this and don't give up. And Tolkien, I think, really would have been tempted, I think, to give it up because he he he, um, he, he niggled, he kind of kept coming back to things and reworking and rewriting with the result they never got written. And I think that, that mm. really uh, Lewis, in effect, was quite stern and said, you've got to write this and you've got to finish it. And that, I think, really was Lewis's role right throughout um, you know, that, that, that critical part of Tolkien's career. I mean, as, as this took shape, um, did, what, what's your sense of, of, of Tolkien and Lewis's view? Was it, was it just, well, look, this is a labour of love and it'll be great to see it published at some point. Did, did they, either of them anticipate the extraordinary success that The Lord of the Rings would go on to have? No. No, no, nobody did. Uh, you, you couldn't have foreseen this at all. It was a kind of um, massive um, scale narrative with a huge backplot. Um, and that, that would have been seen as simply not commercially viable. Uh, and I think that one reason that actually is worth mentioning here is that Tolkien's Hobbit, which is, is, is it's well written, but it doesn't have the conceptual depth of The Lord of the Rings, actually was surprisingly well received. And it kind of way um, prepared the ground at the publishing level for Lewis, for Tolkien to write something else, another Hobbit book. And if indeed The Lord of the Rings began as another Hobbit book and then kind of way rapidly expanded to become rather more than that. And publishers were slightly puzzled by this. Um, but the, the key point, I think, is that um, this was a very, very ambitious piece of writing. And I don't think anybody really anticipated A, getting published and B, having such an impact. Uh, did did, did um, Tolkien specifically... I mean, is it fair to say that, that those writings, The Hobbit, Lord of the Rings, kind of defined the genre of fantasy for, well, up to, up to the present day, largely? I think that The Hobbit um, may have helped move things along, but I think The Lord of the Rings would now be seen as part of the canon of um, fantasy literature. And I think that, um, obviously, there's a history to this. There, there were works like this in the past. I think... From my own reading of these, I would say that what I see in Lord of the Rings is not simply imaginative brilliance, but conceptual depth. You know, what Tolkien is doing is not simply um, telling a story in a fantasy world. He's also wrestling with major 
moral, spiritual, and intellectual issues, but doing within the context of this narrative with well-defined characters. And the result is it has a sort of plausibility. You know, you, you're, you're caught along by the narrative. You're caught up by the ideas. You're caught up by the, the, the whole idea of this conflict between good and evil. I think that in many ways, Tolkien has been one of the more successful, serious um, fantasy writers because he's been able to bring together the genre of fantasy and serious intellectual reflection. Now, we've already spoken, and you've spoken with Ruth on previous podcasts, about the fact that Lewis and Tolkien didn't always agree. And to some extent later on in life, you know, fell out a little bit on their different approaches to to writing fantasy and, and the extent to which the Christian message should or shouldn't be present in that. I mean, how would you characterise Tolkien's approach versus Lewis's on this? Um, because I think for, you know, the careful reader, it's not that difficult to to see that there are certainly Christological themes, let's say, in The Lord of the Rings, you know, the return of the king and so on. You know, it's, it's got lots of sort of relevance, though it's never it's certainly never as explicit as, as it obviously is in Lewis, the way Lewis represents, you know, the, the allegories in, in his own writing. So, so what, what was the difference in the way they chose to, to bring out the Christian worldview in, in their different fantasy literature? Well, I think you've already begun to um, help us see what is. I mean, for me, um, although I, I enjoy the Chronicles of Narnia, they're very in your face. You know, the Christianity is it's certainly there. It's not exactly subtly stated. And, and maybe that's a good thing because it means it's very easy to make the Christian connections. But it does mean I think some readers will say this kind of stuff is just being forced on me. You know, I'd much rather discover it. And that's what you find in Tolkien. It's much more subtle that the, the, it's, there's no doubt at all. The Lord of the Rings is a Christian narrative, but it's not immediately obvious. There's no religion in, um, in, in Middle-earth. <laughs> there, no, there are no temples, there are no religious buildings, um, there's no explicit mention of priests or anything like that. But as Tolkien said in one of his letters, there's a natural theology there. What he means by that is there is a kind of careful working of ideas which, um, if followed through, lead you to very central Christian themes. And what Tolkien, I think, is doing is telling you a story which you can then connect up with the Christian narrative, which brings added depth to it, but doesn't force you into kind of saying, oh, I can see where he's coming from. That, that, that's, that's kind of him just retelling the story. He's not retelling it. He, he is kind of a reworking it in a way that will make you curious and you may, may lead you to follow through and find it and then reconnect with the text itself. So I think many scholars would say that um, Tolkien's work is actually apologetically much more engaging, much more enticing than Lewis's rather rather blunt approach to the same question. Having said that, I, I'm still constantly surprised at the number of people I meet who haven't yet grasped the the Christian symbolism in Lewis's books. And, and to, perhaps to you and I, it's blindingly obvious, but to people who simply don't have the, the you know the background knowledge any longer frankly of the christian story it, it may actually need to be literally pointed out for them to to realize oh yes the, the, this is actually a retelling of the gospels essentially but but so so given given their different approaches though what what i mean i've, I've already used the phrase allegory is is that a an appropriate label to put on what lewis is doing or what tolkien is doing what what are the kinds of 
what what would you describe it as when it comes to to lewis versus tolkien's approach to to allowing the christian story to be told through their literature people do use the word allegory quite a lot and i think i think people understand that word in lots of different ways i think that uh, for me an allegory is something where you tell a story and each element of the story is not identical with but provides a link to another story and we find that certainly uh, in uh, lewis's first book which is the pilgrim's regress and that clearly is an allegory i i would be cautious about calling um the narnia chronicles allegories what i would say is they are creative retellings of the christian story and if you want to use the word allegory in a loose sense meaning something that is not directly equivalent to the christian narrative then yes it, it is but that that, that really is, is a slightly modified understanding of what the word allegory means what is tolkien's approach I, I, I don't think I, I can find a word which adequately describes it. it. He himself talked about as being a natural theology. In other words, um, the telling of a, a story which on the surface appears to have no reference to God, to Christ, to religion, to religious institutions at all. And yet, as you begin to get caught up in this narrative, you begin to, in effect, discern a deeper structure. And that is where this is taking us. Now, I think the interesting point mm -hmm. is exactly what you suggested a moment ago, which is people kind of know less and less about Christianity these days. So they, they are less able to see these things. And of course, both Tolkien and Lewis were writing these at a time when people had a much greater inherited understanding of what Christianity was all about. So that, that's an important point. But another point we could make would be that maybe this is a good thing, because actually Tolkien and Lewis then might become gateways to a deeper reflection on the Christian faith, precisely because people do not recognize them as being this. And as they reflect on them, they begin to say, ah, that leads me into this narrative. I'll explore that one now. What's that phrase of Lewis? You'll have to give it to me about the watchful dragons. Um, what, what, what's that phrase that, that he, he uses to describe? The imagination is able to get past the watchful dragons of reason. And the point he's trying to make is that actually if you tell a good story then people will keep listening, even though part of them is saying, this can't be right. You know, they say, I want to, I want to see where this goes. And, and Lewis knows that if you tell a good story, it has the intellectual and imaginative momentum to keep going. And you say, I, I, I just see where this goes. I mean, I remember reading the, the Da Vinci Code many years ago. Um, and and I, as I read it, you know, I thought, oh, this is, this is nonsense. <laughs> oh, dear me. I'll just see what happens next. Turn the next page. You know, oh, dear. Oh, <laughs> what happens next? And, and you know, the power of the story kept me going. And I think that, that's the key point here, that if you are able to tell a good story, your readers will follow you, even though they're not entirely sure where you're taking them. That's certainly true of uh, both Lewis and Tolkien. I do want to explore as well the fact that and, and again, we've covered this before, the fact that obviously Tolkien was, was not very pleased with the way Lewis sort of, in his view, sort of put together a bit of a jumble of different themes and so on, um, both pagan and Christian, you know, Father Christmas turning up alongside, you know, representations of Greek gods and things in, uh, in Narnia. Um, now, latterly... And I, I'm not sure where you stand on, on this theory, but obviously Michael Ward, another well-known C.S. Lewis scholar, has, has said um, that there was actually a hidden code, effectively, in the Narnia stories. 
um, that actually there was this sort of medieval planetary schema that Lewis uh, was was uh, hid hidden sort of you know within the books that kind of gives them a unifying uh, sort of th theme even though there seem to be so many disparate elements actually there there is a you can make sense of it with, with this particular way of looking at the the planetary scheme across the seven books from Narnia uh, first of all I'd be interested in in whether you, you to what extent you agree with Michael Ward's thesis on that and and to what extent you have sympathy for for Tolkien's you know rather disparaging view of, of, of the way Lewis put the Narnia stories together well this would Two very good questions. On, on the first one, I mean, when I first read Michael Ward's book, I thought, you know, this, this, is, this is this is a kind of way imposing this scheme on Narnia. So I had a look at it, and actually it, it does make some sense. Um, for example, um, you know, it, it helps you make sense of the way in which Prince Caspian, which is about... Um, uh, about, which is about conflict, um, actually also contains a lot of verdant imagery. And of course, the classical uh, idea of, of, the, of the god Mars is not simply the god of war, but actually is it's about springtime. Our, 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 the month of March in the West is when mm. you know, spring begins. So actually, there's something there. But I have to say, I don't see it as being a controlling image. And also, um, one or two people have done some word word analyses, and they don't really see the kind of correspondence you might expect to find. So I think it's, it's an interesting point. Um, and we're always looking for fresh insights on Lewis. And I think that was one of the more interesting ways of reading Lewis, which arrived recently. I think it, it, it still deserves very careful consideration. But moving on to Tolkien. Um, Tolkien was sceptical about Lewis. And I think there are three problems. And one of them you've hinted, hinted at, which is that um, he has a rather crude understanding of myth which uh, Tolkien just felt was um, rather blunt and unsatisfactory. So we, we'll just agree on that and then pass on because there are two other things that we need to talk about. One was that um, Tolkien really, I think, felt that there was no backstory. These, these stories of Narnia had been written in haste. Now, I mean, Lewis did take some time to write these, but actually I know what he means because um, when you read Tolkien, you always have the sense that Tolkien could have written other stories, other novels, to kind of way fill in the detail that's clearly there in his mind. The languages, the backstories, they're all there. And in fact, some of them are now available to us through um, the work of his family, who've published lots of these older manuscripts which gives us the backstory. That's not really there in Lewis. And so very often when you read Lewis, you have this sense of things happening, but and, and there are vague allusions to other things having happened, but it's not integral to the story, and actually it's not clear what they are. Whereas with Tolkien, you have the sense there is this massive big story of which you are being told part. It's all interconnected. So that, I think, is very important. The other thing is just slightly more awkward, which is that um, Tolkien, I think, felt when he read Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia that he'd, well, he'd seen some of those ideas before. <laughs> that maybe Lewis had kind of way borrowed some of them and not perhaps um, been entirely open about that. But I mean, I'm sure that was inevitable, given that they, they talked so much about their joint projects. And Mary, maybe we should see this as cross-fertilisation rather than anything else. Um, to what extent um, did... I, I suppose, you know, nowadays we know both of those names for their fantasy literature. Did... Um, uh, to, to what to what extent did um firstly tolkien kind of appreciate how successful the books became were, were they kind of 
a bestseller within his own lifetime. I mean, obviously, he didn't know about the movie franchises and things like that that would come later and that, you know, The Hobbit would be a, a Lego figure and an action figure and everything else in between. But but did he did he kind of live to see, you know, the book really, you know, become a, a, a cult bestseller as, as it did? Well, I think um, by the time of Tolkien's death, it was very clear that The Lord of the Rings was being widely read, particularly in North America. I think the, the problem that Tolkien had, it was being read by people who he would kind of were thrown out as lectures. They were kind of you know, <laughs> hippie type people. And um, I think Tolkien was always a bit worried about who was reading and enjoying these quite so much. I think there was also another issue which we, we, we should talk about, and that is that um, Lewis and Tolkien were both academics. And they were both academics who wrote at a popular level. And that is a risky thing to do for an academic because, in effect, it creates the impression that you are not academically serious. And actually, that damaged Lewis. There's no doubt that he didn't get a chair at Oxford because people saw him as, as someone who wrote popular books. He eventually got a chair at Cambridge because Tolkien made the case very, very strongly for him. With Tolkien, The Lord of the Rings was published quite late in life. And actually, by that time, Tolkien was absolutely securely established in the Merton Chair of English at Oxford. In other words, you know, he, he was there, he was invulnerable, so he could write this kind of stuff and nobody could really do very much about it. So I think we just need to make that point that both Lewis and Tolkien were taking risks by writing these popular works um, in a very academic environment. Hmm. Um, I, I remember, so I've, I've just been rereading The Lord of the Rings recently, actually, and um, first time in years, actually, but in the introduction and i think this is uh, was written probably in the early 70s um tolkien basically says look lots of people have given lots of theories about my book um but really no one's no, no one's got it right it, it's not supposed to be some allegory about you know nuclear war it's not supposed to be this that or the other um and and to that extent do you, i mean have we tried sometimes to over interpret the works of both both Lewis and Tolkien, you know, but when when fan, you know, fans really, you know, want to lay great big themes and meanings upon them, I suppose there is always that danger, isn't there? There's always that danger. And certainly um, when Tolkien's book was being widely read in the 60s, you know, we're talking about the, well, the fear of nuclear destruction. And of course, it was very obvious that, you know, this this weapon that you had, but you could not use because it would be used against you, that would it would destroy you as well as your enemies. Actually, it made some sense. But of course, it, Tolkien had no idea of that at all. And it's clearly an imposition on the idea. I think that, that's one of the problems. Actually, people do tend to read um, the Lord of the Rings in the light of their own situations. I think it's a tribute to, to Tolkien's narrative genius that actually you can make connections between Tolkien's narrative and so many situations. But I don't, I don't think that Tolkien really intended that. I think he thought he'd just tell a very good story which was rooted in this deep understanding of the nature of reality. And of course, he, he is standing in a tradition. You know, they think of, for example, Wagner's um, Ring of the Nibelungen, which is very much about the possession 
possession of something that actually gives you power, or indeed the Faust myth of the early Renaissance, which again is the same thing, that in effect you're given power in a very mystical way, but it damages you, it, it, it dehumanizes you. And so you know, there's a rich tradition that, that Tolkien is drawing on here. So I think one of his remarkable achievements is to actually, first of all, turn it into an epic, and secondly, to create something that's so imaginatively fertile that people can read this and make connections that Tolkien probably didn't think of, but actually, nevertheless, that helps people to to enjoy the work. Mm. On Lewis's front, uh, you know, having at a popular level begun really with Christian apologetics to a large degree, you know, in later life, you know, he did turn really to to fiction and fantasy writing to get that message across. Why, why do you think he he sort of, to some extent, you know, dropped the the sort of rationalist approach um, that he began with as as an apologist and and moved much more into that sort of imaginative apologetics uh, later in life? Well, I think um, people have made suggestions. For example, the, the, the encounter with Elizabeth Anscombe at the Socratic Club. It's seen by some writers like A.N. Wilson is uh, making Lewis realise that he can't defend Christianity rationally, so he'd better move on and look at it imaginatively. I, I think that's very, very simplistic. I think that Lewis's emphasis on the imagination has always been there. That's very, very clear. It's this, it's this. Um, I would say an enriched idea of reason which enfolds the imagination, and it's always been there. I think what Lewis really felt is during his period at Cambridge, which began in you know, 1955, he actually had the opportunity to try new approaches in a new place. And so that's one of the reasons why his apologetic switches from, um, you know, engaging atheism, engaging unbelief to much more, I'm writing for a Christian audience and trying to help them understand what they believe. It's about reassuring religious people. Think, for example, the four loves. That's a very good way of, uh, of saying, in effect, your faith makes sense and I can actually help you take it further. But the imagination plays a much bigger role in that later period. And uh, there are two th reasons why this might be. One of them is that this has always been what Lewis thought and he now felt able to actually be open about this. But I think it's much more likely that actually he felt that um, there was a cultural change beginning to happen. What we would now call, there wasn't called at the time, the shift from modernity to post-modernity. I think Lewis's understanding of the relationship of reason and imagination meant he could speak both to a rational culture and to a new culture, which in effect was nervous about reason, but wanted to be able to engage something that was subjectively or imaginatively important. So the, the, the outcome of all this is that Lewis is very well received by rationalists and very well received by those of postmodern disposition because there's something in him for both of these audiences. It's been a, a really fascinating journey through the writing and the friendship of uh, Tolkien and Lewis on these podcasts, Alistair. Thank you very much. Um, so further reading, obviously, I suppose, you know, go and pick up Lord of the Rings, The Hobbit to, to you know, remind yourself of, of Tolkien. Um, any any other kind of wider reading, though, beyond Lewis and Tolkien themselves that might help to um, those who want to kind of, I, I don't know, explore the whole area of um, literature and the the you know apologetics of the imagination let's say that that you could recommend to anybody well i think that there's so many books that i wouldn't know where to begin but what i would say is that colin duries has written a rather nice study of the friendship between lewis 
and Tolkien. And that actually is worth reading because I think it gives you some ideas. But I think my main advice is, look, simply read Lewis and Tolkien and then look on some online bookstore website and see what yeah. people find helpful. And that's always a, an important thing to do. Or go and visit some websites from Lewis or Tolkien fans and they'll always be talking about what they found helpful. And there's a lot there. But I think the most important thing of all is read Lewis, read Tolkien, because actually that's what drives you to the secondary literature. You know, it's basically these two guys have a lot to say. They do indeed. They do indeed. Thank you very much. Uh, it's been great to chat with you on uh, this week's edition of the podcast. Thanks, Alistair. Been wonderful having you. Thank you very much indeed for our wonderful conversation. Thanks for listening to this week's edition of the podcast, which now concludes season four of the show. And for the next couple of weeks, I'll be bringing you some bonus content from Alistair before we leap into season five. Got an exciting set of shows looking at seven significant books by C.S. Lewis on Christian living, Christian apologetics and other themes. If you want more from the show, do visit our show page, cslewispodcast.com. And if you want to support the show from anywhere in the world, you'll find links to do that from today's podcast as well. And don't forget to register for our forthcoming events coming up very shortly. Ask Philip Yancey anything. Uh, that's on Tuesday, the 1st of March. And of course, Unbelievable, the conference 2022, live from the British Library in London, featuring Alistair McGrath as a keynote speaker. Unbelievable.live is the place to go. The links are with today's show. For now, God bless, best wishes, and see you next time. Welcome to Cape and Ray Hall, nestled in the beautiful landscapes between England's national parks. As a Bible school, we offer short-term courses aimed at fostering your spiritual growth and living in a community. Our historic manor house has something for everyone. You can enjoy indoor and outdoor adventures, connect with students from around the world, and learn how to deepen your relationship with Jesus Christ. Search Cape and Ray England for more information.